Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. Insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners. A podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your host for today's episode is Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to this episode of the Powering Independence Podcast, The Science of Client Acquisition. This is a topic that is near and dear uh, to my heart. I've spent a good part of my career working with advisors, helping them grow their business uh, organically, helping them through business development. And when I think about client acquisition uh, over that time frame, over my 30 plus years, it has changed uh, dramatically. When I started as a broker, and back then we did call ourselves brokers, um, the science of client acquisition included D&B cards or Dun & Bradstreet cards and a telephone. The D&B cards gave you an individual's name, gave you the name of the company that they worked for, and hopefully an accurate telephone number, no guarantees uh, on that. And we spent our days back then smiling and dialing, two to 300 dials a day, with the hope of getting 10 or 15 people that liked what we said, had an interest in the product we were presenting, because back then it was a product-driven business, not an uh, advice-driven business. And if all went well, it's set up for a second conversation. Over that time frame, we also went from a suitability standard to more of a fiduciary standard, and again, from a product push to an uh, advice-based business. To help me unpack this topic of the science of client acquisition, I have three highly experienced guests, so let me introduce them. First is Eric Strid, and Eric is the CEO of Consentus Wealth Advisors. Eric is a self-professed ski bum after graduating Amherst College in 1991, and in 1992, having gotten that out of his system, joined Rittenhouse Capital Management. And sometime later, Eric's dad, Zeke, who is an advisor at Merrill Lynch, sat him down one Sunday afternoon and laid out for him his vision he had of a family wealth advisory practice. Eric joined his father, growing that business over the past 20 years, moving to Wells Fargo from Merrill Lynch, and then eventually in 2014, establishing his own independent wealth management firm along with his father and his brother Paul, called Consentus Wealth Advisors, located down in the beautiful garden spot of King of Prussia, PA. So, Eric, uh, welcome. Thank you. Next, we have Ken Heyman. Ken is an MD of the Advisor Institute at Alliance Bernstein, where he develops and delivers consulting training to financial advisors on strategic marketing, effective client communications, and practice management strategies. I've had the good pleasure of knowing Ken for a long time. Ken joined Alliance Bernstein in 2005 and has a bachelor's in business administration from Lebanon Valley College, a master's in divinity from the Princeton Theological Seminary, and a master's of arts in pastoral counseling from Moravian College. Ken also has 20,000 hours in clinical psychology practice and is a former hospital chaplain. So, Ken, welcome. Thanks, Ed. And rounding on our panel is Liz Manabe, managing director of business consulting at Schwab Advisory Services. Liz has nearly 20 years of financial services experience, having begun her career at UBS as a business performance consultant, was director of coaching at ClientWise, another practice management consulting firm, senior relationship manager at Fidelity, and Liz has a bachelor's degree in psychology from Mount St. Vincent and a master's in industrial and organizational psychology from Baruch College. So Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. I want to start 
um, today's podcast with a concern that I have. In Schwab's uh, 2018 benchmarking study, it highlighted the fact that from 2013 through 17, firms grew revenue at an average of 9.8%, total AUM by 10.9%, yet only grew new clients by 5.5%, or approximately half of what uh, the new assets were for that period. Similarly, in 2017, firms over $250 million, so presumably some of the best firms in our industry, grew assets by 16.2%, but only had net organic growth of 5.6%. This all occurred during a 10 to 11-year bull market, where I think a lot of advisors and firms have done a wonderful job um, either fooling or deluding themselves that they have really been growing uh, the business well and have not gone through any type of correction or drawdown or sustained period of, of pullback uh, in our industry. And that, to me, is a concern because that day uh, will come uh, someday. Ken, I want to turn to you and, and first ask you, do you share my concern? And if you do, why do you think that is? But more importantly, what do we do about it? Absolutely, Ed. I totally share your concern. Uh, and the issues are legion associated with that. We, we're in an in industry right now where the average age of the client is increasing every year. We don't see an even distribution of clients. So you have advisors who have these wonderfully productive practices that are actually in the process of turning over and becoming a less, uh, a less stable business model. You have advisors that are looking at their growth numbers, all that confirmation of endpoint data, and, and looking at themselves saying, hey, we have this successful business. Well, if the business success is the result of forces that you're not in control of, that you're not taking action to create, then it is an illusion that your business is stable. It is an illusion that you are causing this. So when we look more critically at advisor practice, what we see are advisors who are not investing significant time in growth. When they are investing time, they're investing it in activities that are not being tracked, that are not methodologically constructed. They are kind of haphazard social action. We have advisors who, whose point of view is, well, you know, you go out there and you make some social contacts and then eventually somebody will become a client. In the age today of skepticism, that happens less and less often. People don't spontaneously decide to change advisors because they like somebody they met on the board or whatever. So all of the prevailing assumptions, all the prevailing habits that we developed in the industry over the last 20, 25 years, since, since I've been consulting since the early 90s, are really be, being rele revealed as inefficient or, or perhaps even ineffective. So if the question is, should we be concerned? We absolutely should, because it's really easy to fool yourself when, when the numbers of revenue and the numbers of assets are getting higher that actually your business is stable. Our experience is that these are businesses that are more and more fragile. So if the question is, what do you do about it? Well, there's a number of things. Uh, first of all, you look at your, the way you're spending your time. Are, are you investing time in meaningful new business acquisition activity? And, and don't fool yourself. Actually track it. Secondly, do you have a methodology for doing this? Are, are you intentionally using a strategy to start a conversation, using a strategy to advance a conversation? Are, are you intentionally closing for 
a an outcome. Thirdly, do you understand how the targets that you want to work with, the referral advocates or the actual end user clients that are prospective to your practice, do you understand how they think? Do you understand what motivates them to take action? The title of your podcast is the, you know, the science of new business acquisition. And that's the point is, are you approaching this from a defined, methodological, tested, evolving conversational process that you are in control of? And if advisors are honest, for the most part, that's a very, very rare experience. Interesting points, and I think all valid points. The, the, the idea being that um, in the past, there wasn't this methodology, right? There wasn't this kind of process or, or science. And I think when a firm thinks about their growth, they have to think about who do they want to target, right? Who do they want to bring in? So, Liz, turning to you, um, you work day-to-day with different firms from a consulting basis, helping them define kind of that ideal client persona and then creating some type of process and plan around that. If you could talk a little bit about what goes into this definition of an ideal client persona or a target market is, as Ken has referenced. Sure. The first question I ask before we go into worksheets and the exercise itself as a team, I ask them, if I were to call your top five clients today, what would each of them say are the reasons that they you know, do business with you? What are the things that you're concerned about? What um, are the ways that they've really helped you? So essentially the true value of the firm. And so through that conversation with the advisors, you know, I get a feel for some of the things that are important to them so that we can just begin to have the dialogue. Then I'll hand out as either pre-work or during the discussion a worksheet where we really seek to understand not only the demographics of their top clients, you know, let's use the top three as an example, but we ask them to look at things like their psychographics, like Ken mentioned, you know, what are the things that are on their minds? What are they concerned about? Um, We also want to know how they want to consume information, right? Do they read blogs? Do they consume digital content? And so we want to know what board memberships they belong to. What are the things that they care about, maybe from a perhaps a charitable perspective? So we really look at the whole person and the relationships in their life, how they came to find their advisor, just everything you could possibly think of. So it's a really good deep dive on their top clients and really understanding you know, what they care about at the end of the day. So from their kind of defining going forward, what those characteristics are and to continue to build on that. I think Liz is exactly right. If you look into what she's saying there, if you look at it psychologically, you know, again, from the scientific perspective, what, what she's looking to find out and help the advisor discover is what's the motivation structure of that particular individual. So in our work with clients, it parallels very much what Liz is doing, we're looking at what is it that the advisor knows? What, what are the resources that are actually solutions to problems that the advisor knows about that a, a particular type of client doesn't know about, a, a particular a prospective client doesn't know about? How can we help the advisor position themselves in the mind of the, this other individual within a few minutes of meeting them? So that that individual concludes, oh, my goodness, that is someone I need to talk to more. They represent a resource that I need in my life. And so what Liz is is doing psychologically is she's shifting the advisor's attention from the products and services they provide 
to the needs of the human being. And as soon as you do that, the whole process of new business acquisition changes. It gets energized and empowered in terms of the, the influence potential of your messaging. And by peeling the onion on what those ideal clients look like, not only can you, the advisor, but your whole team can be on the same page. And what we often find, right, Ken, is that all of a sudden those characteristics when a prospect asks you what you know, what does a typical client of yours look like? It rolls off the tongue so easily. But right now, it's I see a lot of advisors winging it. Yeah. It sounds like we should have retitled this the psychology of client acquisition. But it's an interesting point in that so much of it is, is how a prospective client perceives you and in turn what you perceive about them and, and how, to, how to deliver that. Um, and I think that's changed a lot. Uh, over time, what you say is important um, to them. E- Eric, turning to you, you've now been doing this for for you know over 20 years. Um, I want to get from your perspective as an advisor that's out there growing a business. How have you seen it change when you started first uh, with your father and his vision about an advisory practice? Back at a time, by the way, where the concept of an advisory practice was not as mainstream. Uh, as it is today. And then also, if you could touch on the fact that since you've gone independent over the past four and a half or five years, uh, you have truly uh, doubled your AUM um, and have done it in a much more focused and process-driven way than you might have uh, in the past. Yes, uh, for sure. So, I mean, I, you know, Ed, it's funny, used to open the conversation talking about the old days with the DMB uh, cards and you know cold calling and so forth and so to me uh, and I you know I probably came into the business maybe the tail end of that era uh, the first you know five or eight years of my career that was probably still was the model and that was the way we were trained you know in my training class back at Merrill Lynch and but certainly my dad's whole career you know that was that was the model and I, to me the biggest change that's occurred um, is with the the rise of the availability of financial services for the average family, okay, in the last 20 years. What it means for us as an industry is that it used to be um, so much easier to acquire new clients because not everybody you spoke to already had an advisor. I mean, it was I mean, if you can imagine those days, how, how wonderful it would be to be able to pick up the phone and actually be able to every once in a while reach somebody who had money but who didn't have an advisor or, or who hadn't um, you know, consciously made the decision to not have an advisor because they wanted to go to Vanguard and do it themselves. So in other words, the, the world was not um, saturated with financial advice, and you could actually do things like cold calling. You, you could sell your way into to winning a client right. by cold calling them or presenting some product that they hadn't heard of before or something like that. Whereas now in today's world, you know, you're really, when you're winning, when you're growing organically, you're winning business away from another advisor. I mean, that's nine times out of 10, that's what's happening. So obviously we have to get a lot more creative. And I think to me, um, much more relationship-based, referral-based in in how we we win new business. Um, And and, and to me, what the way marketing um, has evolved in, in my brain is, Really what the job is, is to um, expose yourself and what you do and your value proposition to as large a network of people as you can so that when 
there, when there is a need that arises in your network from a person who just got an inheritance or who just is selling a business or who has become dissatisfied with their current advisor or any range of things where there may be money in motion, that you become thought of, right? And you get, you get, a, you get a crack at it. Um, that, to me, that really is what marketing is today, is, is really branding yourself among a big enough population of people so that when a need does arise, um, you get to the table. Because to me, um, the only time you're going to win a new client is when there is an actual tangible need, when, when they're in market or in, in play, what I like to call it. Something's happening in their life when, where they are searching for a financial advisor. Um, so, you know, so we've done a whole host of things to try to uh, stimulate that. Um, uh, a lot of it digital, which is, you know, it's great. The, the Internet and email and so forth does give you the opportunity for very cheaply to spread your message and your brand fairly far and wide. Um, we're using LinkedIn a lot uh, in that effort. Um, and, you know, I can talk about some of the specific strategies we're using as the conversation goes on or if, if you'd like me to. But, um, but really, that's the, you know, one of the things that we have learned about particularly digital marketing, which I think is a real hot, topic today and every I think one of the traps that we can all fall into is this idea that we're going to build some widget um, online uh, or on social media that's all of a sudden is going to just start generating this like flow of new clients walking in our door that like the technology is just going to do that for us and to me I think that's a that's a path that can really lead to frustration or at least that's what I've learned but but that instead what the digital strategy and the social media strategy complement your ability to have great interpersonal skills and great relationship skills in such a way that it, it helps to spread that brand so that, all, so that all of a sudden when someone does raise their hand, when someone in your network does have a need, you're, you're the one they think of. Eric, uh, I couldn't agree more in terms of strategy, but for the sake of the, the uh, idea of the science of this thing, what I wanted to point out about what you were saying that I think is incredibly powerful is that the strategy that you are using is to touch as many people as possible with a well-articulated value proposition with the assumption that eventually there will be an event or a trigger that will cause them to say, oh, I have a need, and then associate your brand to that need. So your activity is put as much of that brand identity out there, get it as refined and articulated and understandable as possible, and then wait for the natural development in human life for individuals who have complex financial lives to drive that individual occasionally toward you. I, I'd like to add a second approach that can be used. And I think that's a, what you're doing is a powerful approach. You're using the right tools for it. Advisors would be well served to embrace and adopt that vision. But there's another vision, not, not a better one, simply a different one. It is possible to cause an individual who's not looking for an advisor to realize that the advisor they have is not providing an adequate engagement with their needs. And so we teach at the Advisor Institute at Alliance Bernstein, we teach an additional model, not, not a, an oppositional. This is simply an additional way to think about it. You can go into a group of people. You can go into a group of referral advocates, educate them about a problem that is not well understood, that is not well served, that is not well resolved, alert them that a number of their clients have this problem and are not addressing it, and cause them to have the event by your own messaging activity that in your process 
the natural process of life creates. So you can wait for life with a large footprint of messaging to deliver motivated individuals to you, powerful way to do it. You can also cause individuals to realize they have a need through a very specific messaging process and have them move toward you because of that. Two, two complementary powerful processes, but both are based on solid science of human motivation. So I'm actually glad you, you mentioned that because I um, couldn't agree more. In fact, I will give you, Ken, a plug in saying that uh, I've been to, um, I've heard you speak about that exact approach and read a lot of your, uh, the content you've written about that approach and wholeheartedly agree. And actually, am, you know, we are trying to, um, uh, to embrace that approach as best we can, and to actually, um, that, that's a that's a spoke in the in the in our marketing strategy for sure. I think you know it's a complementary piece to the um, what what I was describing, um, and I think it's part of the marketing plan, um, and clearly one that for us um, has been successful. I mean, historically, I I look at exactly what you just described: our ability to make relationships with, you know, primarily CPAs. Um, and to uh, educate them about a um, an area of planning or whatever that um, where their their client may be underserved or where their client has a need, and all of a sudden we've got we've created an opportunity. Um, so I, I completely agree, and I think that that's clearly part of part of the the overall strategy. Thank you, Eric. So Liz, Eric, you know, made reference to the fact that part of his growth has been through referrals. And when I talk to advisors all the time and I work with advisors all the time um, and you ask them, what's your business growth strategy? The first thing that comes out of their mouth is referrals. The second question I ask is, great, how do you get those referrals? What are you doing? And they say, well, if we do a good job, that client thinks of us when they hear about one of their friends. And then I'll say, great, how many new relationships did you open up last year? And they'll give me a number and I'll say how many have come from referrals and they'll give me a number. And then when, to Ken's point before, when you actually go to the numbers and the actual statistics, again, the advisor may have slightly overestimated both the number of referrals and, uh, and the number of new relationships uh, that they open, uh, opened during that prior year. So turning to you, what does a firm have to do to create kind of first a referral culture that it becomes just a process and not an ad hoc event? Um, and then how do you take that process and kind of bring it out to the marketplace? So first and foremost, I would say they've got to be really clear as a team on who their ideal client persona is. We talked about that before, right? And that's the characteristics that embody their best clients, their most rewarding clients. Number two, they need to have a clear understanding of what their client value proposition is. And part of that is, yes, the firm's attributes and their services and their offerings, all very key. Facts and figures are great. But what is the true client benefit? So language, having language that truly articulates what that firm does, right? People use peace of mind. Clients still love that phrase, right? Provide comfort in taking back control of wealth and money after a divorce, of a death of a spouse when they've never been, let's say, in control of that. So once they understand, number one, the client, ideal client persona, number two, the client value proposition. And when you peel that onion, you really have your messaging down, right? So assuming we have that as the foundational elements of your messaging, then in order to create a referral culture, what you need to do is 
tell stories. Well, create stories and then tell stories over and over and over again. And how do you do that? You talk about how your firm was founded. You talk about ways that you've helped clients deal with issues. And so if you, for example, in a client meeting, here's one strategy that seems to work with the clients that uh, do this. So if, for example, in a client meeting, you've got a, let's say, firm update is the first part of the, that agenda, and you're talking about you know new technology, new staff, et cetera, and then you can talk about, um, well, here's some of the trends that we're seeing, and you can share a story. Or you could talk about um, ways that you've helped clients, and you know if it's a, such a powerful emotional story, you could say when people ask, you know, how's your day going, or how's everything going, and and instead of saying, oh, busy, so overwhelmed, you know, why not share a story? And so having everybody in the firm create a library of stories, share the stories, and so once you begin to do that, and it seeps throughout the culture of the firm, then it just become so natural. And I'm seeing that more and more where every opportunity an advisor or team member can take to tell a story, they're starting to tell it over and over and over again. And then the reaction, the desired reaction is from the client is, oh, wow, you know what? I didn't even realize that you did that. Thanks for sharing that story. So Liz is so right on this concept of how stories organize behavior. Most people don't know this. And again, this is back to the science, what happens neurologically. There's two ways that human beings learn. Human beings learn by trial and error, which, by the way, is a very painful way to learn (laughs) things, right? But what has created the success of our species is we can also learn by somebody else's experience. And how do we learn that? Through a story. And this goes to the very root of how, how culture is created. So one of the things that they do in in Liz's program is they help the practice itself figure out its own narrative. That's why she talked about the the history of the practice, why why we were created, what, what, what drove our creativity. Part of what they also do in this program is by helping you author your own story, create your own narrative, is they create an excitement, think about this now, an excitement in the staff about what we're actually doing. Because as she said in in her narrative just now, as she said, what's the actual benefit to the client? So imagine if every member of your team was lit up about what their work was accomplishing in the lives of the people they were working with. And they understood the connection. You know, these reports or this, this information or these services or these actions I'm taking and how that contributes to the well-being of the client, and everybody gets it, and everybody has a narrative to share about that and a shared narrative with each other. Now, the, the challenge, Liz would be the first to tell you this, is having the time, effort, and energy, investing the time, effort, and energy as an organization, first to understand you need to do that, and then to actually do it, have these people equipped with that. But if you'll make that investment, it, it literally changes everything because your practice personnel represent a huge automatic footprint out into the marketplace. And as a, a closing remark here, just to confirm the power of this, I, I, we're, we're recording this a couple of days after the fire uh, over in Paris at, at the cathedral. And I was reminded uh, of, of a story I remembered a long time ago, actually from, from seminary, of two uh, stone workers 
who are uh, working in a stone pit. And one of them's pretty depressed and angry and frustrated, and he's pounding out the stone. And somebody comes up to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm, I'm making some bricks here for this building. And this other guy right next to him is pounding on the stone the same way, but he seems happy as can be. And the person says, so what are you doing? It must be a different project. And it, no, it's the same project. I'm building a cathedral. Right. And so the meaning of what it means to go to work on your practice and then the meaning of being able to talk about it to somebody else and say, this is what we're doing. Talk about lighting other people up. And, and that's just one piece of it. Obviously, there's other mechanisms and stuff. But, boy, I'll tell you, you get down to those stories, Liz, and it just it creates this unity of the organization and, and really organizes behavior in the pro- process. They're so powerful, right? Stories are memorable. I'm going to remember that story again. <laughs> um, there you go. So to take that one step further... From what I'm hearing or gathering from what you're saying, this concept of stories, the the impact that a firm has on clients' lives, and everybody inside of that organization, inside of that firm, knowing it and living it, creates rather enthusiastic brand ambassadors outside the confines of a nine-to-five job or the four walls uh, of an office. And I think, you know, again, knowing the folks at Consentus fairly well, I think that you've just kind of epitomized uh, the way their culture uh, exists. And Eric, turning to you for a second on this concept of, of referrals, I read a book years and years ago uh, called Speaker of the House, written by Tip O'Neill, the former uh, speaker. And if I go back to my opening comment about referrals, that when you talk to an advisor, they say, well, if I do a really good job, uh, the client will refer me out to, to their friends. And in the book, Tip O'Neill talks about the first time that he ran for Congress in, in his um, area of Boston, and he lost uh, his first run. And he's walking down the street in Boston. I guess this is a time to tell stories. Walking down the street in Boston, comes across um, Mrs. Uh, McCallan and says, uh, you know, at least I know, Ms. McCallan, you voted for me. And she said, well, Tip, I almost didn't. And he said, well, you've known me my whole life. What do you mean you almost didn't? And she said, well, you actually never asked me for my vote. And the concept here kind of hit me that we can sit there and maybe expect referrals and hope for referrals, but people want to help. They just want to be asked to help. So with that, Eric, you guys have got a a fantastic referral culture uh, down there. Everybody's thinking about that uh, all the time. I know that you've grown the business uh, tremendously through this referral process. If you could talk about kind of the thinking at Consentus and what you guys do on a regular basis to ask for, generate referrals, and, and grow the business? Yeah, so I, I um, you know, our, our thinking and the way we execute this has really evolved a lot in the last couple of years. And, and really what I would say is the way strategically we think about it is there are, there are really two different things that we hope for. One is an actual referral, a genuine referral, the other is an introduction, and they, those are two different things. Um, the definition of a referral is, um, uh, hey, Eric, um, you know, my brother-in-law, uh, his company just got sold, and he's, he's just got a wire transfer for $4 bucks, and he needs help. Um, will you call, can he call you? Like, so that's a referral. Um, and that is uh, much more rare, right? <laughs> it's it's uh, much happier when it happens. Um, but um, 
but that's something that, that we, we cultivate through what I think of and I call referral awareness. Um, I've actually kind of, where I've gotten to in my head is um, we, we really don't like to ask for referrals anymore. Um, I've gotten to this point where, you know, I've, it sunk into me that, like, if I went to the best brain surgeon in, um, in Philadelphia because I um, had a brain tumor, and he performed this really great surgery on me. Uh, and then as I'm walking out, he, he said, here are, you know, 10 business cards. Uh, could you hand these out to your friends? So, like, I, my mindset is I'd like our practice to be um, thought of as the best, you know, the, the, the very highest level uh, uh, service in the area. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't really want referrals and I don't want to cultivate a, a referral awareness among our clients. And so the way what we really try to do is to, and we hammer home on this, um, I'm not putting you on the spot, uh, Mr. Client. Um, I do want you to know that, you know, we do grow our business through referrals, and uh, it's an important part of what we do, and we really love helping um, the friends and family of our of our clients. And um, there's going to come a day when someone you know has a need for something that we, for what we do, and that someone they're going to need a level of service that we provide. And when that day comes, um, please make sure that they give us a call, and here's how they can reach us. So we give them some sort of a tangible, whether it's a laminated business card or a brochure or some something that they can pass along if and when that, that particular time happens. So I'm not like we're not at the end of the meeting, you know, give us three names. There's two ways we get paid or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's more um, pr- pr- constantly promoting the awareness that we really appreciate when you refer us. It's a real compliment to us. We're going to take incredibly great care of the people that you refer to us. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a casual thing. It's going to happen at some point that someone you know will need us, and here's how they can get in touch with us. Um, so that's referrals. Uh, introductions are a different story. I mean, introductions, in my opinion, are this is a new person that we can add to our network. This is a new person that I can get some face time with. Um, I can tell my story to. I can explain, you know, what we do. And we'll go out and become a brand ambassador for me, uh, either may become a client or or may become a brand ambassador for me. And that's where it's just like, hey, um, there's a guy uh, who I know from the club, and I'd like to get to know him. So, and I know one of my clients knows him. Hey, would you mind introducing me to that guy? It's not like would you refer me to him. It's just would would you introduce me to him? I'd love to have coffee with him sometime. Um, and one of the things that we do uh, that has worked, probably the, the the one single strategy that has worked the very best for us from a marketing perspective, and I won't take authorship of it because it was uh, another actually dynasty advisor who helped us to build this, but we do this thing we call lunch with four interesting people. And um, so the way that works is we've got, uh, we're pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, we're, we're constantly sending out uh, invitations to link to our to the secondary connections of the people who we're linked in with. So, for example, one of our clients who we're linked in with, um, we're inviting all the people that that he may know uh, to link in with us as well. And if someone does link in with us, so that's a it's even though we didn't ask the client for that introduction, it, in a way it's you know leveraging that client's network. Um, and when someone does link in with us, um, if they're, you know, I take a look at their profile, and if they look interesting, they look like a C-level or an entrepreneur or somebody I'd like to get to know, uh, we send them an invitation to attend a lunch with four interesting people. And uh, we have one every month um, at a restaurant right close by the office here. And um, we've been doing it for a couple of years, and we've been able to definitely get at least one, sometimes more than one lunch every month with four 
you know, business leaders from the Philadelphia area. Because, um, you know, when you invite someone to a lunch with four interesting people, they're intrigued, you know. I mean, some people just blow it off and say, no, I'm not interested. But generally, people are somewhat intrigued. Like, what's that all about? Who am I going to meet, you know? And so we have this lunch. And back to the idea of story, um, we just go around the table and I start and we, we tell our story. You know, I talk about where I went to college, um, yeah, played sports in college, I'm into skiing, here's what I do for a living, here's why it excites me, here's, here's this, why I get satisfaction from my career, um, here's my kids, you know, what sports they're into, just here's me, my, my story, uh, tell me your story. And we just go around the room and everybody tells their story. And uh, typically by the end of the lunch, four, five stories and you're done, uh, a nice lunch. And we just got a chance to meet um, four other people who I can then, you know, put on my, my distribution list. I can uh, check in with. I invite them to events. After that, I, 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 you know, I add them to my network. Um, I've gotten a few actual clients directly from that, a few people who left the room saying, hey, you know what, I actually do have a need um, in a couple cases. And in a lot of other cases, the people who have come to those lunches have introduced me to other people I can invite to the lunch. Um, so it's really built up quite a, a network of people who I've had FaceTime and had an opportunity to tell my story to, you know, who now know me and now, uh, you know, again, back to expanding that brand and expanding the number of ambassadors you have out in the community, um, it's, been, it's been really, really helpful and effective. Right, and that's been a great uh, tool for you and approach. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric. You you don't use that lunch with four interesting people as a platform to pitch consensus. It really no. is just to meet four interesting people and create those connectivities. And, and uh, if I if I remember correctly as well, you've had people that said, "I'm very sorry, I can't attend that one, but please make sure you keep me on the list for the next one." So absolutely. So. You have to be genuine about when, when, you, when I say, I'm not, this isn't like a, uh, this isn't a seminar, right? This isn't a pitch to right. like win you as a client. That's genuine. I'm, I'm, I want to meet you. And, and actually, one of the side benefits of doing this is I've met some really cool and really interesting people, okay? And I just want to, you know, expand my business network. That's it. I just want to tell my story and you'll walk out of the room knowing who I am and think well of me. Uh, and, you know, if you happen to have a need to hire a financial advisor right now, I'm the guy you can talk to. Uh, but if not, then, you know, hopefully our paths will continue to cross in the future. And now we've got, uh, you know, a relationship um, that I can draw on uh, into the future. Um, so it's been but both from the standpoint of, of actual business development, but also from the standpoint of, you know, building our network and also just personal enjoyment of meeting and knowing a bunch of really interesting people. It's been a really great thing that, we, that we've done. Ed, I uh, want to pause for a minute and go back to this idea of the science of referrals and look at analytically look at what he's doing here. So he has a chance to tell his story. Others get excited about that. A more basic issue is that he's deciding to spend his time with intention. These are not accidental encounters. He's He's thinking back all the way to how do I want to source really interesting people and how do I want to put them together? How can I create a framework? He's controlling the experience of new business development. And, and that's all with intention. Back to the first thing you brought up in this session. Let, let me add a, just a, a twist in science here. And, and again, looking closely to strategy, because I know there's going to be a number of people listening to this 
that are going to be lit up by this strategy and are going to go reproduce it. And I hope you do, because this is something that's fabulous, right? And again, it grows out of the whole dynasty network, uh, that, that sharing of ideas that dynasty represents, very powerful. We can add one little piece to his strategy and it, it significantly increased the likelihood of engagement. And, and this is pure science. So remember how we started, he said, you know, I tell my story, where I came from, what I'm doing, what I'm excited about, right? Now, what's going to happen in that room is because he leads, everyone with a pretty high level of predictability is going to tell this, their story in the same structure. Where, where I went to school, what I did, what my interests are, what lights me up. They're going to follow him. So if he'll add one dimension to his story, he will massively increase the likelihood of engagement. And that is if he adds the dimension, what's the next big thing in my life? Which is to point out where I'm at and what I'm transitioning toward, right? So in my life, for example, my kids are grown, so I'm no longer, I'm, I'm an empty nester, but that happened years ago. So what's the next big event in my life? Well, it's, it's likely to be in the next 10 years a transition into retirement, right? And, or a different way of, you know, being productive, you know, that, that isn't the, the stuff that I do today. Well, if I'm telling that story to him in this lunch, the next big event in his life would be precisely the reason they might need a new advisor. Right. Might be precisely the opportunity for him to say, well, you know, we have this whole consultation on the, this big transition, Ken. When you're ready to do that, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about how we help people with that. Now, he'd have to be obviously be careful about, you know, uh, appearing to be uh, selling himself. But everyone in that room knows that we're all in this business activity and that networking is important and that we all represent possible resources to each other. It, what, what an amazingly creative place to be and add one little uh, addition to your story. And again, you just activate motivation. Well, it's, it's a really interesting point because, you know, going back to Eric's comment uh, earlier in the, in the podcast, when he said in the old days, um, trying to get new clients was a bit easier because you had people out there with money, with wealth that didn't have clients. Now and today, and to your point, Ken, a life change, whatever that may be, causes a client, an investor, to look at their current scenario, whether it's an accountant, whether it's an attorney or a financial advisor, and ask prompts them to ask themselves a the question, will these advisors be the right ones as I go through this life change, whether it's selling a business? We, we hear it all the time where clients say, where an advisor says, I don't understand it. I had this client. They had $2 million with me. And then when they sold their business for $50 million, it was a bake-off and they ended up at another firm. And that's probably because they thought of you as the advisor who handled $2 million, not $50 million. So being able to position and to understand that life change, I think, uh, really has an impact. Um, Liz, turning to you for a second on, we've now heard a couple of times from Ken and, and from Eric talking about technology um, coming in. To me, when I started in the business, the big technological change was going from a rotary phone to a push-button phone. That was big. But now, um, as we think about technology, and, and Eric's talked a couple of times about the work that Consensus is doing in LinkedIn and social and digital media marketing. Um, what are your thoughts uh, around that? What are the best advisors doing to embrace digital marketing 
and to create some scale and leverage in uh, new client acquisition. Well, let's start with an interesting fact, and that is that there are more devices connected to the Internet today than there are human beings on the planet. Okay, and that number is 7.5 billion people in the world. So that's that's a lot of devices connected, right? So there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of buzz. And so advisors really need to sound different. They need to avoid using the buzzwords that everybody else is using. And they need to make sure that their message is is reaching their ideal clients, right? Because when you consider that there's um, the average that the average consumer consumes about 11 hours of content a day, about 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube per minute. Wow. Mm-hmm. The average person has 5.5 social media accounts. I mean, the the statistics can go on. And so the point is, there's just so much noise. So if they, if advisors are choosing to go on um, social media, et cetera, you, you know, the, I think the key is to really go back to the client value proposition and say, you know, what is our messaging? How can we amplify it? You know, so for example, with social media, you know, you've got to be responsive. It's a two-way street. So constantly engaging with your um, followers is, is really key. Publish regularly. Um, events. Lots of advisors do events. So why not link digital marketing efforts to some of your events? So if you're hosting a seminar or you're um, putting on a um, web uh, a, a webinar, you know, why not Share it on LinkedIn. Tweet it. I mean, there's just so many different ways, you know, because it does work, but it certainly takes time. And so it's what is digital marketing doing? It's allowing you to engage with your audience. It's allowing you to strengthen your brand in the marketplace. Um, and there are so many different ways. I mean, blogs, you know, search engines. I mean, video. Just video. Absolutely. Yeah. And the good news about video these days is that it's becoming more and more uh, popular um, but the key is having your story. And with all the technology in place today, you don't really need to necessarily, you know, go outside and hire an external agency. You could do it in-house. So there's just so many different methodologies out there that can amplify your message in the marketplace. I think the the corrective on that is only this, that there's powerful tools. And Liz's organization is is very able to advise in terms of their vision of how you can use this stuff. But as Eric pointed out, at the end of the day, there's no magic bullet. And what I see more than anything else with advisors is, you know, can we do something on the web that'll drive a lot of people in the door so I can just sit down, close them, and book the money? And and that, and I hear Eric laughing on the phone, uh, but this I see literally every day, that that they're missing the fact that the decision to engage a financial advisor may start with a search on LinkedIn or may start with an encounter in a social media post. But it's eventually going to be an encounter between you and this other person. And you better have a superior capability of articulating your value to this human so that the digital world is not going to be the, the, the simple solution that allows you to continue to avoid, well, what Eric is demonstrating, that there's activity that has to happen in actual human contact, contact yeah. right? What, what I, you know, believe me, um, 
I have shed a, a whole lot of frustrated tears over this topic because, uh, you know, I, we came into the. I mean, we started really a digital marketing initiative a couple of years ago, really. So we've been at this and really working hard at it. Um, and I did come into it with this magic lamp, you know, syndrome, which was like the, the, the Internet's a magic lamp that's just going to spit out prospects are going to come walking into my office with their statements in their hands, you know. And... Uh, yeah, like we have no idea. Like, how, how, we're not. How can we can't get people to engage with our emails? I write tons of content. Why aren't they reading our content? They're not clicking on it, and it's because exactly what Liz just said. Like, you, we, these people are so inundated. It's more likely that they'll read my content if they were somehow else driven to me by, by a referral or something else. Then they're going to check me out. Okay, so it has to be there because they will check that stuff out. But that it's not going to be the thing that drives them to me. The, the, the one thing that has worked, again, with this digital is people still do accept LinkedIn invitations. I mean, you know, they still do. I mean, I don't know how long that's going to be, but, we, you know, we're getting somewhere between 30 and 50 new links a week of people who accept our, our LinkedIn invitation. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's a lot. That's, that's pretty sick. That's, that's 50 new people who somehow know us, um, and then we're we're leveraging that into this into this lunch program, um, so that and you know it's really funny like the psychology of it. I think a big part of it is because we're we're telling them they're interesting right. um, just by virtue of inviting them, and that somehow triggers something in their brain. But we get a, a, a response rate that really is constantly shocks me. How people will even if they're not going to come, they'll write back. Uh, you know, hey, can't make it or whatever. And um, so, there, so, so that's a, it's, a, uh, it's something different, right? It's a, it's a different way to create a relationship with them that in a lot of cases may benefit them. I mean, a lot of these people are also folks who are active in the business community who are also looking to build their networks, too. So I'm offering them something, you know, in return for coming to this lunch. You're going to meet three other people, and you never know. You could walk in the room, and one of those three people could do something to help you, which, by the way, has happened many times. I've had people who um, connected separate from me and have had really good mutual business connections um, that have happened. So it's so back to the psychology. What it has also done is created this mystique that I'm the gatekeeper of an important, you know, valuable uh, business network in the city of Philadelphia that you want to be a part of. Now, whether or not you ever do business with me or whatever, but. I'm somebody who, you, you know, I, I, I hold the purse strings to a valuable network of people. And, um, and I've seen that really, uh, you know, taken a couple of years to brand it. We built a website around it. Um, we, we've done a lot to continue to – we have a LinkedIn group where we link these people in after they've come to the lunch. So we're continuing to communicate that we have events for them after, you know, so you, we have alumni events if you've come to a lunch that you get invited to. And it's become this, you know, somewhat branded network that – I control, uh, which has been pretty powerful. Eric is right on in in this this what he's reflecting, and the key word he's using is value. It, as a guiding principle for this thing, if every advisor who hears the podcast understands every encounter you have, whether it's with a prospective client or with a referral advocate, they need to get real value out of the conversation. And whether it leads to business for you or not, as long as they're getting value, 
you're building something positive. If they're not getting value, you're stealing an hour of their time on your agenda, and it's going to work in exactly the opposite dimension. So, so one of the things, um, and not to beat this particular strategy to death, but it just has worked really well for us, but one of the things I'm, I'm planning to start doing, because, um, Ken, I have read your stuff, uh, and really like the ideas, but one of the things I'm planning on doing is starting to reach out to CPAs, attorneys, uh, et cetera, in our community and, and say, hey, listen, um, why don't we sit down to lunch? I want to tell you about my business, but I also want to tell you about this thing that I started, this Lunch with Four Interesting People, which is a really cool way for you to get to meet a bunch of business owners in your community. I'll tell you exactly how I do it. And, and share with them a business development opportunity where they can grow their business and their network as a means to um, tie them into me, you know, to, to, to add value to them so that they'll, they'll think well of me, <laughs> which is all I'm trying to, trying to accomplish. Right, and just to touch on this concept of, of lunch with four interesting people, uh, Eric, you referenced this before. This started with another uh, dynasty advisor, Doug DeGroote, uh, and Doug has actually created a whole platform and program around this concept of four, lunch with four interesting people. So anybody listening to the podcast, if you want to learn more about it, uh, certainly send us uh, an email and, and we'll get you the information. I was going to say at some point, just to take this a, to a deeper level, is you know once you've got the network, right, and, and Ken over here also has his strategy, which I think is complementary in terms of really working with COIs and developing solid COIs. You know, I think it's important for the listeners to realize that at some point you want to, what we call a Schwab, qualify for fit, right? You don't have hours upon hours upon hours a week uh, to be doing lunches and breakfast, right? So you want to be sure that you're spending your time with the right people. So if you know what your ideal client is and your client value proposition, you want to make sure is the person sitting in front of you or the people sitting in front of you that ultimately you'd want to have as part of your network and then ideally one of your really core centers of influence, let's say 357, you don't want 25 necessarily, but you want to make sure that the people that are in your CY network have similar clients as you do, have a similar service strategy as you, have similar values and beliefs as you do, so that you're really aligned not only as business owners, but as people and as human beings. And so I think there's an important step, you know, after you're doing your networking to really make sure that you're complementary and that you fit on these very important levels. You raise some an interesting point, Liz, and, and I just want to throw out a couple of statistics uh, on that, and this comes from our friends at, at Bernstein. But the top 1%, we always hear about the top 1% in the U.S., they control 40% of the wealth. Well, that's only 1%, so let's expand it out to 10%. The top 10% control 75% of the wealth. So to your point about you have a limited amount of time and resources— you want to make sure that those people that you are marketing to or trying to bring in are a fit for your business. So why would you possibly start to focus on those individuals that are in the top 20%? Because they're not going to have right the wealth. Top 10% in this country is still a rather significant uh, number of, uh, of wealthy clients. And you know what, Ed? Uh, the interesting thing about that is that top 10%, not only have they accumulated wealth, but because they accumulated wealth, they've accumulated a problem with complexity. That is to say, 
they have a problem with all the stuff that need, they need to make decisions about. And so with confidence, a practice like Eric's can position itself with individuals in that top 10% or the top 5%, knowing that they're going to have problems associated with making decisions that they're not equipped to make. And to Liz's point, and I think one of the great things about the discipline that her program brings to the table is to force the advisor to avoid one of the most dangerous seductions in this industry. And Liz is going to laugh when I say this, and this is to try to be all things to all people, to to not leave business on the table. I mean, how so many true. times I've heard that. The advisor is trying to be all things to all people is actually effectively unable to be anything significant to anyone. So what if you if you think about back, if you were to look at the transcript of this podcast, Liz calls us back to this insight over and over again because her program does. Who's the client you should be working with? How well do you know them? Do you know them all the way down to their bones? Do you know all of the problems they have? Have you designed your practice to solve those problems? And are you disciplined in, the, in your approach in terms of bringing the right people in? I, I, I can tell you, she's nodding, I can tell you that getting someone to adopt that disciplined approach is probably the hardest part of your consultations. Yeah, and then getting all the team members who are part of it to agree right, to is, buy in. is yeah exactly, and and generally they buy in because I'm fortunate to be able to work with those who are really motivated to get clear on this. At an advisor that I'm working with in Atlanta the other day, call me and they're so eager to start their digital marketing program and they've done so much by way of growing through referrals and centers of influence. But he he said, you know, we really need to change our messaging and we need to. Uh, re-examine what we have as far as our ideal client and client value proposition. And he said, you know, when I look at our website, he goes, 1990s called me the other day and they want their website back. And <laughs> it's so old and we need to, you know, work on this. He goes, so that's me saying that, but now I'm going to bring in four of my partners right. and, you know, let's have fun with this and let's get really clear. So. so we've danced around this topic of COI referrals, professional um, referrals. And Alliance Bernstein in 2017 did a study of 800 high net worth um, families and asked them when they changed a financial advisor, what was it that brought them to that new advisor? And I believe 100% of them said it was a referral from a trusted professional, whether it was a CPA or an attorney or something along those lines. And what I've seen in the past is when advisors tried to work with COIs, they make this mistake of, of saying, you'll give me business, I'll give you business, and then it's a game of chicken to see who goes first, right? Um, and I would guess, Ken, that you don't necessarily think that's the right approach to I think, generating. I, I think it's a terrible approach. Um, it's common. Uh, and the way I talk about it, and this is, and Ed, you know I talk about this a lot, and Eric, uh, you, you see this in the materials you've read, we don't like the idea at all of turning humans into currency. You know, I've, I've got some humans, you've got some humans, let's exchange them and we'll both benefit from that. And, and by the way, you hear everything that Liz and Eric are both saying, both from very different perspectives on the industry. They, they would reflect the same thing. This, this is about meaningful value. And in Webster's Dictionary, the, the word client is defined in a very important and powerful way. The, the, the word in that dictionary is defined as one who is under the protection of another. So we would never encourage an advisor to see a referral as something that was designed to motivate a response. I, I think 
and, and I'm sure Eric does this regularly, he refers to professionals. He's, he gets his clients to the right place. And that's what we want to have the advisor do, become the right place in the mind of the professional. So what we talk about is rather than trying to motivate referrals by giving them something like a client, I would want the advisor to take the time to teach the professional about their unique value and, and in a very particular way. That not the unique value of, let me tell you about my process and my four arrows in a circle and a financial plan that I do, you know, all about me, but to reveal what I know as a solution provider about a problem that a handful of your uniquely successful clients have that they don't know they have that has the potential to harm them and that we have a powerful solution for so that the professional is referring to me as a resource, a necessary destination for these uniquely successful people because they're under his or her protection and now will be under my protection with this skill set. So we call that the referable message. How do I want you to understand me, to Liz's point, how do you, what's my value proposition? How do I want you to understand me? What's the reason to refer to me? And again, back to Eric's point, because they have a situation in life that has consequences that I'm in a position to help them manage. A unique position. And, and a dangerous position. You know, look, if you're uniquely successful and you're evolving through life, and as, as again, Eric points out, you know, kind of brilliantly in this, you know, revealing the light into this client's life, there will be places where they're transitioning and the complexity has consequences of major proportion. And that's the moment where they most need you. And until and unless their accountant or their attorney or another resource in their life, until they know that's available, how will they know to send them to you? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Control for that. Completely agree with you. And we've got some myths at Schwab that are just so in line with what you're saying. You know, things like it's referrals are not quid pro quo. There's a myth that lunch is a strategy. It's so <laughs> not a strategy, right? It's expensive. It's lunch. Yeah. Well, and that can get really quite expensive. I had a prospect that I met with in December, and he, we were talking about how Schwab can help them should they become clients, and so we started down the COI conversation, and he said, oh, gosh, we've been doing this all wrong. He goes, we've got a holiday lunch for 55 of our quote-unquote COIs who never refer us anything, and it's costing us you know $50,000 for this really expensive steak dinner at this uh, great steak place in, in the city, and so the other one is the other myth is, you know, that these COIs understand your value. They really don't, right? They still think that some of you listening today that are truly fiduciaries are brokers. I mean, they they still have that it's that old mindset. It's that old mindset. So the onus is on you all listening to the podcast to educate them, right? And really, like you said, can help them understand that you solve problems, right? You are on their side. And so how do you solve problems and, you know, your approach and so forth? You know, because at some point for some prospective clients, you all look the same, right, as copycats to RIAs or, you know, some of the, the wires. And so really saying you're different and, and how you're different. You know, it, it's an interesting point because I've seen a lot of value props from different firms and advisors and 
even to the point where they will go out very overtly and say, we are trustworthy, right? And Ken, I know that you're of this idea that you, you know, you just don't go out and say you're trustworthy and therefore you are trustworthy. And if I think about the markets that we've been through, um, going into the tech bubble, for those of us who've been around for a while and remember that, a lot of clients blew themselves up because that was the days of, you know, uh, self-trading, these online trading uh, firms popping up and, and everybody thinking that they were market geniuses because they bought tech stocks and those tech stocks only went up until, of course, the time that they didn't. Then we go through 2007, 2008, 2009, where the trust in our industry evaporated to a great extent because the pain that uh, investors felt at that time in many ways was caused by us, caused by the big firms and the financial crisis and everything along those lines. So, Ken, how do you, inside of a, uh, the world of a skeptical client, uh, regain that trust or, more importantly, earn that trust uh, over time? Well, you're well uh, advised to warn us. Uh, the, the worst thing you could do is to walk up to somebody and say, hey, you can trust me. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, announcing that you're trustworthy is probably going to cause the other person to say, uh, and why are you bringing that up? But trust is an instinct in humans. Humans are herding creatures. We we tend to uh, do best when we're living with others. We tend to do best when we're in dynamic, uh, trusting relationships with others. And so it's an instinct in humans to connect, by the way, which is why Eric's protocol works so well. Here's individuals in business and they have an opportunity to connect, and he creates a framework in which some trust can build. And then obviously, as he says, you know, it starts to have a life of its own. But most advisors aren't aware there's a mechanism to operate in humans around trust. And that, that mechanism can be understood in the following uh, sentence, which is actually an equation or an algorithm. The, the trustworthiness is created by the consistent experience of goodwill, that's interpersonal, and professional competency over time. And what happens when trust erodes is it's either the, in this case, the, the trust between advisor and client. So we'll make it this commercial intimacy. It's either an absence of goodwill. I never talk to you. You never initiate. When I'm with you, you treat me like I'm a wallet with ears. I mean, what all the research from all the firms, I mean, Schwab has this in their benchmarking study, absolutely, you know, why do people leave their advisor? Well, it's not typically because of a professional competency failure. It's a goodwill failure at, at, at essence. But as clients become more skeptical, and you think about Eric's uh, target clientele, these business executives, these are individuals that are not just skeptical, but they're very sophisticated. So their need for professional competency as an experience, they need to know you're not, you're not just good at this. You're great at this. And in both cases, if you think about it, we are not seeing advisors intentionally managing the consistent experience of goodwill and the consistent experience of professional competency over time. You want to sustain a permanent relationship, you make both of those things something you're delivering on all the time. And embedded in everything Eric's been saying is this is how he thinks about it kind of organically and, and why he's making these commitments of time and energy to do that. Um, hey, Ed, can I take a time out? Yep. Um, I actually, I wasn't sure we were going to go this long, and I, do, I actually have a lunch with four interesting people today. So can I, uh, I mean, I have this number. Can I dial back in from my cell? 
and continue the conversation. All right, so we'll we'll abandon that question. I'll come back to you with a question after uh, you've dialed in. Yeah. So just give me like three minutes, and I'll and I'll dial back in. No, that's fine. You're you're dead to me on all future podcasts. But I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> all right, I'll be I'll be right back. Okay. Thanks. thanks bye. Um, so Eric, you moved from Wells Fargo and established your own firm with your father and your brother, and did so now going from what the world you lived in, which was a suitability standard to a fiduciary standard, is the way that you interact with clients and the messaging that you have now around this concept of trust, if you will, different now that you've got your own independent advisory firm? Well, interestingly, I mean, uh, you know, the way that we act with clients is not different because, uh, you know, despite all this uh, discussion of the fiduciary standard, I still have a firm underlying belief that the vast majority of people who get into this business do it to help people and, and to be honest and to do a great job for, you know, their fellow humans. So, so no, we don't just be by virtue of leaving a wirehouse. We didn't change any of our behaviors or the, our trustworthiness. Um, but how we talk to clients about it, certainly it's given us a whole new arrow in the quiver to uh, better articulate our value proposition around the topic of our trustworthiness, and and really, I think probably in the biggest way, um, to to tell the story about um, how difficult it actually is to break away from a warehouse environment, um, costs money, free, and uh, you know it's, it's it's something that we did not take lightly, and it wasn't easy for us, but we did it uh, for you. We did it because we we truly felt that this was a move that we absolutely had to make in order to put ourselves into a platform where um, the, the platform itself is uh, ultimately unconflicted in, in the highest way possible. Um, and, and that, both with clients and prospects, that message um, has played really well. Just, just being able to use the word fiduciary, being able to say to, to a client or a prospect, we're a registered independent advisory firm. Um, we don't accept uh, back-end commissions or side deals with, with products. Um, you know, you're, the fees we uh, accept are going to be paid directly by you. You're always going to know what you pay. And, uh, and we've, we've removed that whole layer of conflict of interest. Um, you know, it, look, the, the, the wirehouses, unfortunately, have created a lot of black eyes for themselves. And, um, you know, why, why shouldn't we use that to our advantage? I mean, and to, to um, portray ourselves as different from that. And, uh, and that's been, you know, that's played really well in our, in our story with both clients and prospects. Eric, to your point, uh, in, in my consulting work with individuals who've done what you've done, I've pointed something out to them that, that has been valuable as people have contemplated that transition, and that is, the, the role of the financial advisor at the, at the highest level, beyond the, the concept of fiduciary, you're an advocate for your client. You're, you're an advocate for your client in all ways. You're, they're under your protection. You're an advocate. And one of the things you should advocate for your client about, it goes all the way down to the platform on which you operate. So part of advocacy is to be, make an informed decision about what platform do I believe is in the best interest of my clients. And so the very act of transitioning from one platform to the other can, 
can be, and I think should be understood as an act of client advocacy. Because at its, at its essence, you just described exactly how that is. And part of the power of what Dynasty is offering is the opportunity to execute on that uh, in an effective manner. Go ahead. Well, I was going to take the trust thing a step further and share with the listeners on this podcast that when you think about the clients that you have in your book of business, right, that have been longtime clients, satisfied clients, really loyal, and I'm sure some have referred, right, because we do see that, um, but there's a huge opportunity. Well, since you already have that base level of trust with your clients, right, so if you are able to share with them that you are open to taking on new clients, for example, and because the most bizarre thing that I hear over and over again is that when clients or when advisors tell their clients that they're taking on select clients, let's call it, you know, a dozen clients in, you know, the next year. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize you were taking on new clients. I thought you were just super busy. And then they say, that's good to know because I've got a friend who's, you know, going through something that you know, I want to share with you. That trust is already built. And so why not leverage the trust that you already have with your clients, that clients already have with you? And so it's so much easier when that friend says, you know what, you have to call my advisor, you know, Ed Friedman, right. because he's just amazing and he has helped me in so many different ways. And I think he can help you, right, because you either sold a business or got divorced or lost a spouse. And there's so many scenarios, but the trust there, leverage that with the clients that haven't referred to you. And, and there are reasons why, right, we know that, but, but leverage that trust. Absolutely. And, and to Liz's point, Ed, what she, what's embedded in what she's saying, if again, back to the science of this whole thing, is you're giving the client a reason to take an action. So uh, taking that one logical step further, so you're going to tell them, hey, we're taking in clients. That may help the client understand, hey, there's room. I have somebody that I know. Why don't you give them a, an even more poignant reason? So we had a, a consulting uh, relationship with an advisor in the Midwest, and he had a number of clients in his practice, again, who trusted him, who had living parents. So you think of your 40 and 50-year-old clients have living parents. Most advisors don't think about going upstream in the relationships. Everybody's talking now about going to the millennials, go downstream where they have no money. What this advisor looked at and said, you know, I have clients whose parents may or may not have their affairs in good shape. These are parents in their 70s and their 80s. So he created a reason to refer for his 40 and 50-year-old clients. It was an elder care checklist. We helped him design a checklist of issues that people in their 70s and 80s need to have in place in terms of advice, in terms of strategies, guidances, documentations. And he published this elegant 16-point elder care checklist, and he gave it to his clients at their annual review. 50% of the people he gave it to called him back and said to him, my parents don't have these things in place. Can you help us get these things in place? Of course, these are things you do every day. Why did they call him back? Because they trusted him, to your point, mm -hmm. Liz. He brought in $40 million in one year in really simple, elegant conversations with clients who trusted him, who brought their parents to consolidate their assets. Is, now, is that going to change the world? No. But think about it. It was an intentional, strategic action. Took him a few minutes. 
designed it, capitalized on trust, extended himself to some people, and brought in a whole new raft of business. Well, this has been a great discussion. We've gone a little bit longer than we normally do, but it was an important topic. Quite frankly, we could probably go for another uh, two hours and just not necessarily scratch the surface, get a little bit deeper. Um, but this has been a great uh, discussion. As I typically do on the podcast, I'm going to go around the horn here and ask each of you for one idea, one actionable idea or one thought that you believe those that are tuning in should either be thinking about implementing or utilizing in their practice to kind of start this process, if you will, of, of the science of client acquisition. So, Ken, I'll start with you. Every advisor listening to this podcast has a circle of clients who have advisors they work with. And by the way, every advisor listening to this podcast has a circle of social acquaintances who also have advisors. I would encourage you to get a hold of the guidance we provide from the Advisor Institute on how to reach out to those individuals, spend a seven-minute conversation with them, your social network and your clients, asking them about the CPA they work with, and then asking that person to send an email introducing you to that CPA for a conversation about their practice and about some dimension of value from yours. If you will take the time to do that, it will revolutionize the network of referrals you can create. Wonderful. Liz? I would say remind your clients that you are open to taking on new business because you need to be reminded they're busy. So plant those seeds and in particular plant the trigger phrases through the storytelling that we were talking about so that they understand when they are in front of their friends, their families, those in their community, and they hear those triggers, right? Sale of a business, death of a spouse, that they think of you. Eric, how about you? So, uh, you know, we spent a lot of my time talking about this lunch with foreign community people uh, idea, which, I mean, I, I really would say that that's probably the most successful thing that we've done for business development in, in certainly in the last 10 years, if not my career. Um, so, you know, I'd encourage people to check that out online. There's a, I think uh, Doug DeGroote's got a website that basically takes you through step by step. Um, and and it's, a, it's a powerful way to build a network. Uh, and to, to, to create your, your brand out in the community. Well, wonderful. I want to thank everybody, not only for tuning in, but thank our panelists for sharing their insights, their 20 years of uh, or more of experience. Um, and, you know, to Ken's point and, and even to Eric's point and Liz's, uh, there's a lot of information uh, out there. Uh, the Advisor Institute at Alliance Bernstein puts out some fabulous content around a lot of the topics that we talked about today. Uh, certainly Schwab, uh, has inside of their business consulting and practice management services, uh, fantastic content. And then, you know, to Eric's point about lunch with four interesting people. So if anybody out there is interested in getting any of this information or connecting uh, with any of our speakers, uh, please don't hesitate to, uh, to send us an email. And on behalf of Powering Independence Podcast, I want to thank each of our guests and appreciate the time that they've spent with us today. I want to thank our guests for their great comments and insight, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you found today's episode entertaining, informative, and helpful. And if you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please contact us at podcast at dynastyfp.com. That's podcast at dynastyfrankpeter.com. 
We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. And until then, remember, at Dynasty, we live our American dream by helping you realize your American dream.